0: I grew up in a military family, so we lived all over the United States. I can never remember a time when I was not in church. We, I was raised Southern Baptist, so we were, uh, church was very much a part of our life throughout my
1: upbringing. Do you, do you remember as a kid, like, there being any kind of, like, I don't know, talk about divorce or perceptions about divorce? Like, like when you were little, do you remember that at all?
0: My youngest memory of even hearing the word, um, I probably would have been in third or fourth grade, and there was a woman who attended our church who used to be Catholic, and she couldn't be Catholic anymore uh, because she had been divorced and remarried, and so that was my first exposure to um, divorce as a concept that I can remember
1: were there a lot of stereotypes other than what you mentioned as you got older did you start to in your teenage years
0: probably in my teenage years there were a few uh divorced women that uh, we were exposed to and they were the moms that didn't stay at home all day that weren't there when the kids came home from school they had strange schedules um you know we weren't allowed to go over to their house (laughs) um You know, things like, you know, the person you
1: might catch something or what was the thought? I I
0: was never really sure (laughs) early on what the deal was with that.
1: What were your initial kind of fears and concerns about how you were going to be viewed or treated uh, when you got divorced?
0: I kept the separation a secret uh, for a couple of months. I actually was five months pregnant when I moved out. And got an apartment. I didn't tell anyone at work. I didn't tell my family. Uh, So it was close to probably Thanksgiving, a little bit before Thanksgiving, before my parents knew that I was not living with my husband anymore. Um, They tried to be supportive, but once um, the divorce was final, the biggest shock I had was that my parents sat me down and told me that I was no longer qualified to be a Sunday school teacher, serve in the nursery, do anything in the church.
1: So how did you respond to that?
0: Not very well at the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I had a bit of a meltdown. And so my cousin, uh, who had also been divorced, um, she kind of talked me down off the ledge. And, you know, I kind of recovered from that. But, um it it kind of escalated from there in terms of the churches that I went to. I was probably on the fifth, sixth row, so pretty up front. And this guest um, minister told the congregation that they should never allow uh, a divorced woman into their um, house, into their friendship, into their circle of friends, because uh, it would destroy their marriage. So from that
1: Because all divorced women are like temptresses or.
0: And and we want to destroy everyone else's marriages. I mean, stick it to the world. Right. You know, I can't have a good marriage. I don't want you to have one either. Um, That was so hurtful. We tried to laugh it off later uh, that we were all going to get big scarlet D's and, you know, sew on all of our clothing so that when we came to church, they would know exactly who they were supposed to avoid.
1: Yeah. Did it feel like that? for a while within the church community or even in just kind of culture in general to be a divorced person?
0: Uh, it was it was actually worse in the church than it was in the community. It was the unforgivable sin. I couldn't tell you how many times I would see, you know, someone uh, stand up on the platform and uh, repent of embezzling, repent of murder, repent of whatever, <laughs> and they would go right back to yeah. serving, preaching, whatever. But man, if you were a divorced Woman, that was the unforgivable sin. Hmm.
1: Yeah, if you've been tracking with us in this series called Jack and Jill, you know that we've been making some comparisons. We've been comparing this old nursery rhyme Jack and Jill went up a hill to fetch a pail of water, Jack fell down, broke his crown, and Jill went tumbling after uh, to this real life story, this real meeting that Jesus had a couple thousand years ago beside a well outside of Samaria when he met this woman, and she might as well have been wearing a scarlet letter, right? and what we've been learning about her is that she's been broken, hiding, ashamed, mistreated, ostracized and made fun of and her journey to that well each day, day in and day out is a really good metaphor for her life because she goes to this well to get something but what she receives eventually runs out, runs dry. She finds herself thirsty again and unsatisfied and so she has to go back to the well day after day after day and that represents her life because she's been going to the well of man after man after man trying to get something for men that men are unable to provide for her for her entire life. So much so that she's been married five times and divorced five times and now she's living with another guy. And we don't know everything about her story, which I think is a really good thing But we can make a few assumptions. One one assumption is this No, no one gets married and divorced five times without there being some level of fault on their behalf Uh, We don't know how much was their fault and how much was her fault and all that kind of stuff But you can be assured that she bared some responsibility in this I mean the idea of no-fault divorce is a mirage created by our own culture. It doesn't actually exist See, I believe that it's actually possible to get divorced in a way that's not sinful, but I also believe this, sin is always the cause of divorce. It's not always the effect, but it's always the cause. Let's do a quick poll here for a second. How many of us in the room, by a show of hands, have been affected by divorce by either going through one or two or however many divorces yourself, your parents were divorced, or someone close to you you love has been divorced? Raise your hand. Yeah, it's been this way all weekend, pretty much every hand in the room goes up, and so we're talking about something that's relevant to all of us, and we're talking about something that's sensitive to all of us, and because of that, I want to set up some expectations. I want to talk about what not to expect this week and next, and I want to talk about what I hope you can expect this week and next. The the first thing is this, uh, if you came here hoping that I would make you feel better about your divorce, that might happen, but that's not my goal. If you came here hoping that I was going to provide you with some level of justification for your divorce, again, that might happen, but that's not what I'm after today. If you came here wanting uh, me to give you permission to go get divorced, listen, that's way above my pay grade. I'm not the permission giver. You've got to take that up with someone else, all right? The last thing I would want would be for someone to walk away from this message and go get divorced. If you came here wanting a kind of clear point by point outline of what the Bible has to say about divorce and when it's justified and when it's not based on the Bible, that's not what I'm going to do today either. I have done that in the past and if you want to check that out, um, that's going to be on the front page of our website. I think it's already up. It's from a series we did a long time ago called Behind Closed Doors and I talked all about divorce. You can see that on the front page of the website today if you want to. Now let me tell you what my hopes and dreams for this are and what I I hope we can expect. One is this, you can expect that we're going to talk about some really hard, really painful stuff around here, just like we do every week. And the reason we do that is because we live in the middle of hard, painful stuff and we can't just ignore it. We have to talk about it. But let me tell you this, we're not going to beat anybody up either. See when you hear my mom talk about what it felt like to wear like a scarlet letter, I remember that. I remember what it was like watching church people who are supposed to represent Jesus mistreat my mom. I remember it was like watching people in our family who are supposed to represent, represent Jesus mistreat my mom. And when you're a kid, it's really hard to put those two things together. You represent Jesus, but you're being mean to my mom. That just doesn't make sense. So we're not going to do that to anybody. We're not going to treat anybody like they've committed the unforgivable sin, and we're not going to throw stones, but we are going to talk about some hard realities of Divorce. We're going to talk about the fallout on men and women and children and society in general. But today specifically, I want to look at at how this affects women. And I want to talk about about how redemption and hope are still possible. And I want to talk about the person who redemption and hope are still possible through. And we're going to do that through two primary filters. Uh, The first one is the one we use every week around here, and that's the Bible. The second one is going to be my family's personal story. So let's start in the Bible. If you got them, go ahead and turn to John chapter four again for the 18th week in a row and go to John chapter four and look back at that story where Jesus sits down by this well and he breaks all the cultural norms of his day. When he speaks to this Samaritan woman, he values her and he, 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 he treats her like a human being. And they have this conversation uh, that she thinks is only about physical water, but what Jesus is doing is talking about something on a much more spiritual level when he says, man, What I'm offering you, I'm offering you living water. And if you would just receive this gift that I'm offering you, you would never be thirsty again. And she still is is misunderstanding. So she's like, man, just give me this water so I don't have to keep making this journey to this well day after day. That would be great. And even though there's misunderstanding, things are going pretty well. And then all of a sudden, Jesus does something. This is kind of mind-blowing. He changes the subject. And not only does he change the subject, he changes the subject to the subject. The one thing she does not want to talk about, the thing in her life that's caused her the most pain, the thing that's been the place of her most frequent sin, and he does it with just one simple phrase when he says, go and call your husband and come back. Go and call your husband and come back. You see, whether her sin is that she's been sexually out of control or whether it was allowing men to become God to her or whether it was a mixture of a million different things, this is the thing she doesn't want anybody to talk about. Just like this is the thing a whole bunch of us in this room don't want to talk about today. So my question is simply this. Why does Jesus go there? Why does he do this? Like, why does he bring it up? Things are going pretty well. Why is he gonna go and blow everything up? Two words, grace and truth. Grace and truth. You see, in order for us to understand how good the good news is, we have to be confronted with how bad the bad news is. There is no such thing as grace without truth. Grace cannot hold its power without truth. And grace simply means this. You and I, We can't measure up to our own standards, much less God's. And the Bible says that when we don't measure up to God's standards, that has a word, there's a word for that. It's called sin. And sin has a very specific effect on our lives. Sin separates us from God, but God loved us so much he didn't desire for us to be separated from him. So he sent his one and only son to die and to pay the price and pay the punishment for us so that we could live in a relationship with him. And that's a gift called grace that he offers us, that relationship through his son. It comes at no cost to us, but at great cost to him. And so what Jesus is doing in this moment, he's he's going, listen, you have to come to terms with your sinful, broken state and how you're separated from God so you can understand this grace that God is offering you. He's looking at this woman going, you gotta look at your life. You gotta look at the reality of your life and you gotta quit ignoring this. And she doesn't want to. So she says, listen, I have no husband. Jesus presses even further into deeper water when he says this, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you're now living with is not your husband. What you have said is quite, here's the word, true. Ouch, right? I mean the truth hurts sometimes, doesn't it? And what I want to do right now is I just want to press pause on the story right there and I want to look at the fallout of divorce on, on specifically women and I want to talk about the realities of what happens when a woman who was married can now say legitimately, I have no husband. You see, in Jesus' day, there was this real popular teaching going around uh, from this rabbi named Hillel. He was a pretty famous rabbi, and his teaching was simply this. A man could divorce his wife for any and every reason. And one day, a bunch of people who had been following Hillel's teaching and practically living that out in their lives came to Jesus to test him. And we looked at some of this last week. We're going to look at a little more of it this week. Look at this in Matthew chapter 19. Pick it up in verse, uh, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him, Jesus, to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, "'Moses permitted you to divorce your wives "'because your hearts were hard, "'but it was not this way from the beginning. "'I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife "'except for marital unfaithfulness "'and marries another woman commits adultery. "'The disciples said to him, "'If this is a situation between a husband and a wife, "'it's better not to marry.' Now, there's a whole lot there, and there's, there's a couple really big overarching things I want to make sure that we look at. One of these is this. When, when Jesus and the Pharisees are talking about Moses and what Moses said they could do or couldn't do, they're talking about Moses generations, generations before Jesus, who was the lawgiver. He gave the law of God to his people, and what Moses was, was doing was something that was really, really important. The heartbeat behind the divorce laws that Moses gave was simply this, protecting women. You can't miss this. Protecting women. Because in Moses' day and in Jesus' day, if a man just sent his wife away, kicked her out of the house, that left her in an unbelievably vulnerable position. It left her in an almost entirely helpless position where she couldn't provide and protect herself and often had to turn to prostitution just to make ends meet or to provide for her children. So Moses, in an effort to protect women, said, listen, if you're going to be so hard-hearted, that you're going to just kick your wife out of the house, at least have the decency to give her an official divorce, don't miss this, so that she can be remarried so that she doesn't land in such a vulnerable place. So take that heartbeat behind that law and apply that to some of our, some of our situations we find ourselves in today. Protecting women. How would that play out in an abusive situation today? In other words, if you found yourself, and I've gotten a lot of emails already this weekend and had conversations, if you found yourself in an abusive situation and you got out, good. In the Bible often, uh, preserving human life takes precedence over many things. So if you were preserving your life or the lives of your kids or both, and you got out, good. And if you're in an abusive situation right now, get out, get safe, and get help the last thing I would ever want to do would be to heap guilt on someone who was doing the best they could to protect themselves and protect their kids. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's specifically addressing a specific situation and a specific moment brought by some specific men. Remember, women couldn't even initiate divorce in Jesus's day. He's not trying to give the final word on how and when someone can get divorced. And the reason I know that is because later on in the New Testament, Paul expands on Jesus's teaching on divorce. What Jesus is trying to do is not even to teach on divorce. He's trying to teach on marriage. These guys come to him asking questions about divorce and he teaches them a lesson about marriage. He goes, no, 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 you guys are missing the point. And no matter where Jesus sets the bar when he gives this teaching, it's going to blow their minds because they had such a pervasive culture of divorce. So much so that even Jesus' own followers, those, those young guys who've been following him who have probably watched their own dads and uncles and brothers get divorced maybe five, six, seven times over the course of their life, their expectation for their life is that they're probably gonna get divorced. And so when Jesus sets the bar where he sets the bar, they look at him and go, that sounds impossible. If you're saying this is like a forever covenant before God till death do us part, in light of our current culture, Jesus, it sounds like it'd be better to just not get married. Time out for a second. Does that attitude sound familiar? It does to me. I'll be honest. I mean, I grew up with the expectation that I would get divorced. I just always assumed that would be the case because my parents were divorced and so I just thought that's how it would be. And statistics say that's how it should be. Those of us who have divorced parents, we're supposed to be twice as likely as anybody else to get divorced and nobody else has the greatest chances in the world in staying, staying married, statistically speaking. So it looks like we're really behind the eight ball. See, we have a similar culture of divorce when no-fault divorce was written into law back in the 70s, first in California, and then it came across the rest of the United States. People in our country went to the well of divorce at an unprecedented, rapid pace, and we did that thinking it was going to provide us with something, thinking it was going to give us something, and it did. I don't think it gave us what we thought it was going to give us. And I'm going to talk about what some of those things are that we're living with now as a result. And some of these things that I'm going to talk about are going to be painful. I hope you understand that when I, when I bring up painful stuff, I don't do it because I'm trying to be mean or hurtful. I do it because in the context of grace and truth, I think it's the most loving thing we could possibly do. Is look at what's, what's true and look at what reality is. That's what Jesus did with that woman at the well on that day. See, many people went to the well of divorce, quote unquote, for the kids. I've heard that phrase a million times in my life. We, we got divorced for the kids. And the line of thinking goes like this. Because we're unhappy together, the kids must be unhappy that we're together. And so if we can up our happiness quotient by being apart, then that will trickle down to the kids and they'll be more happy because now we're apart. The problem with that line of thinking is it's not true. It turned out not to be reality. Can I just speak for a bunch of kids who have divorced parents in the room? Can I just say what they're thinking a lot? And they may not put it this way, but this is what they're thinking, and this is what, what I think. Don't use us as an excuse to chase your happiness at our expense. I know that lands heavy, but it's true. That's what we think about it when you say, oh, it was for the kids. At least have the courage to own your own stuff. Don't use us as your excuse to chase your happiness at our expense. See, the idea that, that chasing divorce for the kids will up their happiness is, is just not true. See, some of us, we may be grateful that you got out of an abusive situation and we're thankful that you did, but please don't think that a divorce leads to our happiness, if you don't believe me on some of this stuff, grab this book. It's called The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce by Judith Wallerstein. What she did was, back in the late 70s, early 80s, she gathered a group of kids whose parents were going through a divorce and she stayed with them for 25 years, following up with them repeatedly over the course of the years and studying what, what happened in their life afterwards. And it's, it's very, very eye opening. Another thing we did was we also assumed that divorce is a temporary crisis that hurts the most at the moment that it happens, kind of like pulling off a band-aid like it like it hurts really bad now but then it just quickly kind of goes away and again we were wrong all the studies suggest that one of the unexpected legacies of divorce is how the scars and the pain linger and affect people most often many 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 years later often when they get married themselves I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, he's an elder in this church, he's, he's in his 40s, he's got four kids, I'm in my 30s, I got three and another one on the way, and we're sitting there talking about our parents' divorce, and, and we're both looking at each other going, man, isn't this amazing? Here we are this far into marriage, this far into family and having kids and all that kind of stuff, and we both still carry around the scars and the baggage of our parents' divorce. That's just reality. We also went to the well of divorce thinking it would solve a lot if not all of our problems. Well, man, life will be easier, happier, better. And the question is, what did we actually receive? See, here's what I'm saying tonight is this. What we went looking for and what we found are two totally different things. And that's the premise for this whole series, is it not? We went to this well expecting something, looking for something, something that would satisfy, but what we received didn't do the trick. And I think the same is true about divorce. The way my mom puts it is this. Divorce has caused way more problems in her life than it ever solved. Now, don't miss this. Please don't miss this, all right? Divorce can and does often solve sometimes some really big problems. But if you think you're gonna simply go get a divorce and trade in all your problems and receive no new problems and more problems than you had before, you're gonna be sadly mistaken and disappointed. So the question becomes, what do those problems look like? Especially for women, when reality hits and you can say, I have no husband, regardless of how you ended up there, but when that becomes your reality. You were you guys were divorced when when I was really, really young. Were you actually divorced before I was born or after I was born?
0: After. So Um, shortly after
1: I was born. Yeah. Well, you were a year old. So you moved from Michigan down to Cincinnati, I'm a baby, you Mm -hmm. know. So from this point on you've you've really never done you never have done parenting with a husband in the house in your child. So you were single parent from the start. So Mm -hmm. what What were the unique challenges, things that you, uh, what were some things that you didn't anticipate that were hard?
0: I overestimated my abilities and underestimated the issues, challenges of of solo parenting, a toddler, a three-year-old.
1: What did it look like for you and dad to try to navigate those Mm -hmm. things together, even though for the most part we always lived in different towns and hours and hours away from each other?
0: That was probably one of the biggest, um, emotional challenges for me was giving you up, uh, for visitation when you were quite little, uh, because your dad and I did live in different towns to let go and, um, kind of let you go into environments that I had no control over was, um, pretty concerning, pretty devastating, pretty emotionally trying, uh, at times, um. The point at which I realized that I could not be everything to you anymore, which happens to all mothers, um, but you know that, that you needed um, a man in your life, not any man, but you needed a father, you needed men in your life, you needed good male role models in your life. Um, that was a big challenge, yeah. Probably the biggest challenge, and I don't even know if you realize this, was I didn't have anyone to defend me. You know, there were times where you would be really disrespectful or really, um, I don't want to say cruel, but, teen, you know, teenagers, teenagers can be cruel. And I know that if you were to hear Eli or Silas say those things to Allie, or act that way around Allie, you'd take them to the floor in a heartbeat.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So by to the floor, that's a metaphor for to the word of God. No, you would take
0: them down. There would be a little hand around their neck. (laughs)
1: Shut up. Hey, those are just a couple of the things that she and I talked about that afternoon. And I mean, there are so many issues that that this brings up. So if you're in the room, and I've talked to a bunch this weekend, if you're in the room and you're a single mom, I really want to invite you to something I think is going to be really, really important for you. Next weekend... During the 645 service on Saturday night and this service, the 1045 on Sunday morning at the West End Auditorium, which is just the opposite end of the building, uh, we're going to be doing a single mom's workshop and my mom's going to be teaching at that and just to brag on her for a minute, she's a great teacher, all right? Don't go there just to get stories on me, by the way, all right? But she's a great teacher and she's got a lot of really practical stuff, a lot of really helpful stuff and really challenging stuff. She's going to be sharing there. But on top of that, uh, you're going to get to rub elbows with some people who are going through the exact same thing that you're going through, all right? And it's going to be really, really important for you. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to sign up. You can put your kids in kids ministry. They'll be well taken care of and taught about Jesus while you go do that. So make sure you do that next week. I would say that you should put aside just about anything else that could possibly be on your schedule to make sure you're at that. Uh, one thing my mom just like demanded that, that I talk about this weekend was this. She said, if you try to be a single mom alone and you don't surround yourself with other women trying to do the same thing, uh, but not only that, not just other women trying to do the same thing, but just people in in general who will genuinely care for you, share their lives with you and let you share your life with them. If you don't do that, you have almost zero shot of doing this well. That's what she had to say. And I'd forgotten about this, but one of the things we talked about in the afternoon, we just didn't have time to put it in the video, was that uh, I'd forgotten my mom, when, when I was pretty young, uh, we lived in Lexington, Kentucky at the time, she decided to switch churches and she went to this big church in town and she made this decision that when she got there that despite the fact that the church itself had some kind of official stances about people who were divorced that didn't really represent Jesus or his heartbeat, there were some people inside that church who treated my mom the way Jesus would have treated them she showed just an amazing amount of courage when she did something. And unless you've ever lived in the Bible Belt and gone to a traditional church in the South, you don't have a category for this. But what she did was this. One Sunday morning, she walked by herself into a married couple's Sunday school class and said, can I be a part of your class as a single divorced mom? Unfortunately, there were some people in there that said, absolutely, we'll, we'll, we'll share our lives with you. Well, let's go to a movie this afternoon. And she's been best friends with some of the people in that class for the past like 20-some years. And that took an amazing amount of courage, but don't miss the reason she did it. One of the primary reasons she did it was because she saw tremendous value in me growing up seeing real married people. And she knew it wouldn't make up for the fact that I wasn't seeing a marriage unfold in front of me on a day-to-day basis in my own house, but it was the best that she could do, and it was one of her many really wise decisions. See, unfortunately, in our culture, I think we still buy into the idea that like, like married people should hang out with married people, single people should hang out with single people, and they should never like cross paths, and that prevents us from being able to help one another, and it prevents us from being able to learn from one another. So make sure you surround yourself with, with the right people, if you're in here and you're a single mom, listen to this. Be very wise, though, about who you allow into your life and your kid's life. Let me say this as, as plainly as I can. Your kids don't need to meet every dude you go on a date with. They don't. In fact, just because you go on two, maybe three dates with them, they probably still don't need to meet him. Because here's what happens, and I see it happen repeatedly, over and over and over again. You, you bring a guy and you introduce him to the kids, and the kids like like him. And they like, like hanging out with him and they bond with him and they form like a, a relationship with him and then a few months down the road, he's gone. And then you do that again and then you do that again and you know what that's called? Loss. And you know what that teaches your kids? Never to trust anybody and never to invest in anyone because they always get taken away. So be really, really careful. Not every guy you come across is worth putting in your life, much less your children's life. Just because you've been divorced before doesn't mean you need to settle for less with the next guy. And how about this, don't assume there needs to be a next guy right now. I see that all the time too. People jump from one relationship right into the next. Maybe you need to take a time out. Maybe you need to take a breather for a little while. If you're wrestling with all these issues of divorce and marriage and remarriage and all that kind of stuff, there's a book that was really helpful to my mom many, many years ago, and she gave it to me like seven years ago when I first taught on divorce, and it's called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage in the Bible by Jay Adams. I think you can get it on Amazon for like eight bucks or something like that. Go, go get it, all right? Here's another thing, and this is true for all of us who are parents, but especially for single parents. Don't put too much on your kids. See, sometimes what people do is they go to the well of marriage expecting it to give them more than it could give them, so then they turn to the well of divorce expecting it to fix everything, and when it doesn't, they then turn all of their hopes and all of their dreams, all of their demands, and all of their expectations on their kids. You know what that's called? Too much pressure for any human being, much less your kids. Your kids cannot hold up under that pressure. Your kids can make really, really good kids, but they cannot be your God. Kids make terrible gods. Your identity cannot be determined or dependent on your children. Likewise, you cannot be your kid's savior. You can't. See a lot of super moms out there who are trying to be all things and everything to their kids, and listen to me, the effort's awesome and valiant and honorable. You can't do it. You, you, you can't do it. You cannot be mom and dad. As much as you want to try, you're going to fail and it will not, will not be enough. But there's good news. You don't have to be. You don't have to be all things to your kids. You don't have to be your kid's savior. You don't have to be your kid's super mom. Again, you make a really bad God, but you can be a good mom. What, uh, what are the things you look back now and go, I, I probably didn't do that very well. Uh, and if I had to do it over, I would, I would do it differently. What are the things that you go, if I had to say some things I did right, what were those things?
0: Oh, I did a lot of things wrong. Um, one of the big things, and, and many people have heard me say this, is that uh, I wished I had learned in my 20s how to pray for people. Instead of about people. Uh, When, at least for me, when I pray about people, it's usually still about me. Um, Make them stop doing this or make them do that. Um, Make Scott go to school. um, Make him get good grades. uh, You know, things like that, which is really centering on my need for other people to change their behavior so my life is easier. And what I wish I had learned back then was how to pray more for people.
1: If someone would have told you 35 years ago, you, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, what are the things that you'd, you didn't anticipate that have happened through all this? Have you seen God work in all this? That kind of stuff.
0: Um, if you had told me 30-some years ago, once you had already been born, um, that you would be a minister, a pastor, <laughs> what do you like to be called?
1: Scott is what I prefer oh. to be called.
0: <laughs> um, if you had told me that you would be in full-time ministry, I would have laughed hysterically. Um, if you had told me that you would have uh, a wife who I think is an absolute uh, gift from God to you and that you were still married to her after, you know, 12 years. If you had told me that your dad and I would be serving in the same church, I would have said you were smoking something. <laughs> um,
1: I was smoking something, you just didn't know. Mm-hmm. So. That's a whole other story. That's
0: another that's story. story. <laughs> um, there, there are a lot of things. I think um, I, I could not have predicted where this has gone at all. But I think God is such an expert at taking the things that we would list as being bad times in our life, uh, bad circumstances, and he redeems those into something better than we could even imagined. And what makes us... Um, more in relationship with him. Um, I've probably learned more about God from parenting you. Um, and those are gifts that um, I would have never
1: anticipated. 33 years ago, you were packing up you know, a car, driving from East Lansing, Michigan to Cincinnati, Ohio. What would you tell yourself?
0: I love whitewater canoeing. I used to do a lot of whitewater canoeing when I was younger, and I had an instructor who um, we were doing tandem uh, whitewater canoeing in an open canoe of class four rapids, and I will never forget his instructions. Tighten your personal flotation device, let me choose the course, and you paddle hard. I think that's what Jesus was also telling me, as I was driving in that Chevette all those years ago, and I think that that's what I would tell myself, is to listen to what Jesus was telling me all those years ago, that if I let Him choose the course, that He had this under control, but it was going to be an adventure, and I was going to think I was going to die at certain (laughs) points, but paddle hard.
1: You know, I got an email this week from a, a young single mom who asked these questions. She simply said, is it too late? Is it too late? Where do I even begin? And how does a person start over? When I read that email, I had this mental picture of my mom 33 years ago packing up a Chevette in East Lansing with me and everything we owned and driving to Cincinnati. I thought, that's how. You... You do what you can do and you trust God with everything. You let him choose the course. And when you live your life that way in front of your children, guess what? It leaves a mark. It leaves an impression on them just like it did me. See, it wasn't until many years later, I I distinctly remember having this moment when I was in college where it, it actually hit me that my parents were actual human beings. And I know it's weird, but like, that's how kids see their parents. We don't, we don't see you through the lens of you're a person. We see you through the lens of these, these expectations that you should be perfect. And all of a sudden when it hit me that, no, Scott, your parents are people just like you with flaws and sins and struggles, just like you have, all of a sudden, I didn't have to demand that they be something to me, that they were unable to be, and when I stopped demanding that of them, things in my life started to fall into place. Things like I didn't have to hold their divorce against them anymore because they're people like me and they make mistakes, and I didn't even have to be angry with them anymore because they're people like me and they make mistakes. So let me talk to the kids of divorced parents for a second. When, when I was reading the, the book, Unexpected Legacy of Divorce, I came across this quote by this famous psychiatrist who said this, what's done to children, they will do to society. And when I turn on the news and I see some just crazy thing that's happened, that's the quote that rattles through my brain. Sometimes, unfortunately, that's really, really true. I also came across this quote, and I don't know who said it, but it goes like this. Scars show us where we have been. They do not dictate where we're going. I would say it this way. Scars show us where we've been. They do not have to dictate where we're going. But far too often, we allow them to. So if you're a a child whose parents are divorced, I don't care how old you are, look right at me here for a second. The legacy they left you does not have to be the legacy you leave. That decision's on you. That decision's on me. I don't get to blame my decisions on my parents. That's not the way it works. See, I've been married 12 years now, and it certainly hasn't been without its pain and difficulty and struggles. But as far as I can see, divorce is not on the horizon. And the question is, why is that? Is it because of my determination and commitment now is steadfastness and faithfulness? yes. But you know what? My determination and my commitment and her steadfastness and faithfulness, all of those things are imperfect. And all of those things can have weak moments and all those things can fall apart in a second. What I've learned in my life is maybe just one thing Jesus never falls apart, Jesus never fails. There's this verse in Ecclesiastes we've talked about before. It often gets quoted at weddings. It's, it's actually in the context of friendship, which is perfect for marriage because that's one of the fundamental building blocks of a marriage. You should be best friends with one another. And it goes like this, a cord of three strands is not quickly or easily broken. And the really weird thing about that verse is simply this. All the verses leading up to it are talking about two two are better than one, two can get a better return for their work, Uh, one falls down, the other can help them up, Uh, one lies down, the other can lay down and keep them warm, two are better than one. That's the whole context and then all of a sudden it flips to a cord of three strands, is not quickly broken. The question becomes who's the third strand? The answer is Jesus. See, despite my weakness, Jesus is strong, and in my weakness, Jesus is strong, and when marriage is hard, which it is all the time, he's right there with me, because remember, we've talked about this over and over and over again, like Jim said last week, marriage is about something bigger than itself. Marriage is meant to point to something bigger than just a man and a woman in the context of marriage. It's bigger than that. It's meant to be a divine reenactment, a painting, a portrait, if you will, of Jesus's love and affection for the church. And one thing I know about Jesus is simply this. He knows what it's like to be in a relationship with a difficult person. You know how I know that? Because he's in a relationship with me. And he's in a relationship with some of you, all right? He knows what it's like. And he shows up every day and he never leaves us and he never forsakes us. But where does that leave those of us who are divorced? Once, twice, ten times, whatever it is. All right, well, let's just go with that, all right? Let, let me ask you, let's paint the worst case scenario. Let's just say that you have committed the trifecta of sinfulness as it pertains to divorce and remarriage, all right? You, you got married for simple reasons and you shouldn't have. You got divorced for simple reasons and you shouldn't have. And you got remarried for simple reasons and you shouldn't have. What do you think Jesus is saying to you today? Do you think he's looking at you going, I, I don't even know what to do with you. Your sinfulness astounds me, get away. I mean, do you think... Do you think that's what he's saying? Do you think he's looking at you going, you're beyond hope, you're beyond redemption, you're beyond repair? Or do you think just by chance, maybe, he's saying the same thing to you this morning he said to a woman at a well, who, by the way, committed the trifecta double, when he said, look at your life. It's pretty screwed up, isn't it? You got a lot of scars. Do you you want tomorrow to be different from today? Do you want your future to be different than your past? Do you want your scars to continue to dictate where you're going or do you want something different? Because you can have something different and it's a gift, it's a free gift and it's me. That's what Jesus said to her on that day. See, if you asked me, if you said, hey Scott, I'm gonna take away the whole Bible from you but I'll leave you with one chapter, I would say, okay, leave me Romans chapter eight. See, in Romans chapter eight, Paul talks about Uh, all the pain, all the suffering, all the difficulty we go through in life. And he describes it in a lot of different terms. He talks about how it's like, man, day after day, we're like lamb sheep being led to the slaughter. That's how it feels some days. And then at the end of the chapter, he caps it off by saying this in verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You see, when Paul says... In all these things, he's talking about all the pain, all the sadness, all the loss, all the grief, all the failed marriages, everything you can imagine right on down the list, not outside of those things, but in all these things, he says, we are more than conquerors. And if you step back from that phrase, that's a really weird phrase. How can you be like more than a conqueror? You're either like a conqueror or not. You're like a winner or a loser. How can you be more than a conqueror? He's using military language here. And the context is this, when you conquered someone in in battle, you killed them, that's how you conquered them. But if you were gonna be more than a conqueror, you would, you would not kill them, you would actually bring them into your service, make them your slaves, so that they now serve your good and your purposes. So when he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors, he's saying, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your tragedy, in the midst of your loss, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your divorce, in all these things, I can make those things serve your good. I'll make those things serve your purpose. And the question becomes, how is that possible? And our culture screams back, through the power of positive thinking. <laughs> Wrong, that's a bunch of crap. <laughs> what does the Bible actually say? The Bible actually says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Who's the one who loved us? Look at this, how he caps off the chapter in verse 38. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who loves us? God does. How do you know? He sent his one and only son to die for you. What other proof do you need? He never promised life would be easy he never promised it would be void of pain or suffering in fact he promised the opposite he said it'll be really really hard just like it was for my son jesus and it's going to feel like you're going to die at different points along the way but here's the confidence you can walk through life knowing that not even death could separate you from the love of god that's in christ jesus our lord that's what makes you more than a conqueror let's pray father We come before you in the midst of our brokenness. We come before you in the midst of our failure. We come to you in the midst of our unfaithfulness, whatever we bring to the table today, and we lay it at your feet, and we go, here it is, here we are. And God, we trust that you'll treat us exactly the way that you treated that woman at that well 2,000 years ago, and that you'll give us grace. In the context of the truth of our life, you'll offer us grace and mercy right now in our time of need, because one thing is true. Your love never fails, thank you for that. In Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.